You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as the self-appointed Chief Justice of Facebook's new Supreme Court, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is someone I'm very excited to have here, Carol Cadwallader, the reporter and writer for The Guardian, The Observer, who really blew the lid off Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal last year. Earlier this year, she also gave an amazing TED Talk about Silicon Valley and fake news. And she says that she has recently been sued by one of the bad boys of Brexit. We'll talk about that and more. Carol, welcome to Recode Decode. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me, There's Cara. No it's very exciting. We are in Eng- London, England. We are right? in London, That's England. where I'm doing this. I had to come all the way here to get you on my podcast. I'm actually here for a few days and doing some uh, different podcasts with people here. Um, and also one of my pivot episodes. But I really wanted to talk to you. You're the one person I really wanted to talk to. Where should we start? I don't quite know where to start. I mean, why don't we talk about your background? Let's talk about how you got to where you got and why you started writing about Facebook. And, sort of, and then we'll get into Cambridge Analytica and where it's going in your TED Talk, which was a worldwide sensation, I think. It's stuff we've been talking about in Silicon Valley a long time, but it really set off a lot of uh, talking. And I want to talk about sort of your your time here, because as I understand it, people are trying to say you're a conspiracy theorist, and as it turns out, your conspiracies are through, so you're not a theorist <laughs> in many ways. But let's start with that. Talk about how you got to where you got and why you started writing about tech. So I actually started writing about tech a long time ago. I always, you know, I, I, you know, a year ago, I I used to say, well, I was just a feature writer and I stumbled across this story. But Mm -hmm. actually, the genesis goes back a long time in that I went to a TED conference Mm -hmm. in 2005, I think it was, when it was still a secret kind of conference for millionaires. Mm -hmm. And I was really, you know, I heard talk after talk um, from, you know, about how technology was going to save the world and the crowd was going to come together and we were going to cure cancer and it was going to be amazing. Yeah, that had been going on for a while. Yeah, (laughs) so so I was kind of exposed to it then and I thought this is, you know, this is... What did you think when you were sitting there at these... I've been to zillions of these talks. It's crazy. They like, they went on and on and on and they 
It was also self-congratulatory. Like, aren't we? The- but it was genuinely illuminating right. for me at the time. Because you know, I heard- so you're coming from somewhere else. So you're not yeah, like so, steeped so in it. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I heard, you know, Wikipedia was still sort of fresh and new, it felt at the time. And Jimmy Wales stood up there and explained, you know, how this magical thing operated, you know, beyond, you know, something which we just hadn't been seen before and, and didn't seem like it would be possible. And so I, it just, it really did just sort of blow my mind. And I just started, you know, getting interested in in it and starting well, to write. Was your mind positively or negatively? Oh, very positively. I was very squarely on yes, the tech yes, utopian. Yes. Yeah. I was utterly tech utopian. Better living through apps. Yeah, it was okay. just gonna be it was it was gonna be amazing, this bright new future. Mm-hmm. And and so I just started covering the topic, but in the very much I'm a feature writer. I write for a, a lay audience for I was never you know, I've never been inside the technology section. It wasn't for people who are interested in tech. It was about the Everybody you know, is. the cultural and the political implications of this kind of stuff. And at the same time, I carried on with my other, you know, my normal job, which was I wrote across the newspaper and interviews and reportage and op-eds and things. But, you know, I I kind of, we've all been on that journey Mm -hmm. of seeing the downsides of this kind of technology and getting concerned about the monopolies of it. And so I also started covering that. And so, for example, I went undercover in an Amazon warehouse in Mm -hmm. Wales for a week, maybe six, seven years ago now. Mm -hmm. And... You, know, you wanted to see what conditions were like. There had been some reporting on conditions or... Yeah, and it was just, I mean, it was just fascinating because, and, and sort of barbaric, really. Not barbaric, but brutal. You know, we're working 12, 13, 14-hour days, mm-hmm. walking 16 miles a shift. Mm-hmm. And these people, this was really jobs of last resort. And they didn't... This was, this was in South Wales, which is very much a crucible of the labour movement. But unions weren't inside... Mm-hmm. the the warehouse no no you know n- nobody really knew what was going on inside mm-hmm. you know this thing of walking half a mile to your break to have 5 minutes to sit down to walk back to your workstation and these were really jobs of last resort mm-hmm. um and so I, I you know that was just sort of one aspect of it and and I was following I you know I went out to silicon valley several times to interview people different stories and you know, I'd had the experience of Google being very cross with me for for a, I wrote a I did an interview with Ray Kurzweil. Mm-hmm. They were very cross about. Oh, Ray, yeah. <laughs> Ray, explain who Ray is. So people. So don't. Ray Kurzweil is the is. The, He's never going to die. He's never going to die. He's going to make certain. He's a futurist. And Do you he, know what I said to him once? I go, no matter what. From, there's a line from um, Moonstruck uh, that Olympia Dukakis says to her husband when he's cheating on her. He goes, no matter what you do, Victor, you're going to die. Like, it was great. <laughs> Not Ray. Yeah, not, not Ray. No. He's discovered the secret. Right. So it was this, yeah, so Ray, he, is, works he's, for he's, he now works for I got an interview with him before he started working for Google. And this mm-hmm. is what they got very upset about because by the time the article came out, he was working for them. Mm-hmm. And there he was saying that machine intelligence is going to overtake human intelligence by the year, I think it's 2028. Mm-hmm. And anyway, and actually one of the things which was very pivotal in, the, in how I started thinking about this particular issue of technology and democracy was I went to a tech crunch disrupt conference Um, in San Francisco (laughs) and just met, you know, these thousands of entrepreneurs who were all out to disrupt some industry or another or somebody, I remember meeting somebody who wanted to disrupt socks. I never Mm -hmm. quite understood that. But seeing how, we know, we've 
I've experienced myself the way that journalism has been disrupted. It destroyed our, you know, technology destroyed the business model for newspapers. We saw how it disrupted the music industry. And it was just a sort of few weeks before the US presidential election mm-hmm. that, you know, I just was noticing this sort of constellation of different news stories and thinking, well, you can't really have an election like you used to. Hillary Clinton's emails had been leaked. Right. And... So this idea is kind strategically, of strategically. Very, so, well, now we now know right. incredibly strategically, and there were the first reports coming out of Macedonia about mm-hmm. these teenagers writing fake news articles mm-hmm. for profit, and so I just thought, well, this is technology is disrupting politics. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, somebody must have written that. Somebody must have written this piece. And I Googled it and I was like, oh, nobody has written this piece. So I just did it as a sort of short op-ed mm-hmm. uh, comment piece. And and then we had the, you know, the US presidential election and Trump was elected. And, you know, there was that sort of moment of shock and the first suggestions about the use of technology and the, the, the platforms and Mark mm-hmm. Zuckerberg saying it was ludicrous, the idea that Facebook yeah. had played any role. No, zero. Zero, I think, is the word he Yeah. He, never and, know, he doesn't know how to use the word ludicrous, but go ahead. <laughs> Full on. And, my, and my editor sort of said, you know, do a long feature piece on, let's do a thing on, you know, this phenomenon on fake news and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, two weeks after the the presidential election 2000 November 2016 yeah, and this is the time it, what, what Carol's referring to is Mark gave a, was a, interviewed in an event and he said there was no there was zero chance there was any influence zero, chance. zero chance and then they walked that back to 1.1% or 1 or 011% whatever the lobbyist is saying at the yeah. time but then so anyway and I've just been basically I've been ever since that time that day I have literally what been got you to do this- that what got you because you know a lot of people didn't they the Americans certainly weren't and they were were sort of following along. They just accepted the emails. They they were, you know, people... I'd been writing about the social impact of, of technology on people's partisanship and stuff like that. But is it, it being an outsider, or what do you think? It was just dead obvious, or because of Brexit here? It was part, I think as well, I'd also covered one of the stories I'd sort of, I'd, I'd sort of done a big feature on was Anonymous and Lulzsec and, and that whole way. And I was very, in, there was one story in particular which kind of captured my attention, although it turned out to be a red herring in some senses. But there'd been, just days before the US presidential election, there was a DDoS attack mm-hmm. on a nation state, on a country. They'd, so so this was hackers took down the entire internet for, um, a, I think it was Sierra Leone, I can't yep. remember now. And... I just thought, isn't that kind of, that's astonishing, isn't it? And there was a suggestion that this was a trial run Mm -hmm. so that you could actually try and do this to a state in America, for example, or, or, you know, the idea of trying to do this to an entire country. I mean, it was was just the the way that sort of technology sits so much at the heart Mm -hmm. of these democratic systems. And as I say, it it was a constellation of different stories. And just this, having just written about the whole philosophy around the idea of disruption. So it's this professor of business, I think, Clay Christensen, Mm -hmm. and he called it the mudslide hypothesis, which is so uh, a kind of small change, a small technological advantage, yeah, yeah, can become this sort of tsunami Mm -hmm. and has overturned, you know, established industries. I think his example was IBM. So it it was really the idea of, well, actually... We've seen it happen. We've seen it happen across all these industries and 
and it really does look like politics is next. And, and that is, it's not, you know, politics. <laughs> it's, it's the entire... It's democracy. Right. It is democracy. So you, so you talk about getting to Cambridge Analytica, because that really shifted things. Because Facebook, for the most part, have been saying, well, maybe there was a little influence, maybe there was some Russian purchasing, but they really weren't discussing it. And I remember bothering them at the time, and there wasn't a lot of idea that there might have been a problem on the platform. And I had been at that 2008 event where he talked about third-party information. I remember that very vividly and thinking, is that a good thing for this idiot company to be getting the information off of Facebook? Facebook wasn't very big at the time. It wasn't as big. It was mm. big, but it wasn't mm. as, as it wasn't 2.6 billion people. So talk about that. How did you move to that? So I actually, so I mean, the focus of the first big piece I did, which was just a couple of weeks after the the election, was Google, Mm -hmm. actually. And I, I, you know, kind of every talk I do, I always talk about it because it just, it's, it, just oh, Google's still, just a big, important part of this. But it was this, it was this thing about this, you know, when I started looking at the topic and I got really, I just started going, was like, how does Google search actually work? And so this playing around with it and putting in terms. And it, this was this thing I put in Jews into the search bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Google, you make it into a question. So I put, are Jews? And the suggestion I got was, are Jews evil? Mm-hmm. That was the top one. Right. And you don't even you don't even have to press return. It just no, fills your fills, you fills yep. your results. It's automatic. And the entire page of results. And I was like, I didn't ask that question. Google has suggested a question, and now it's answering it. And every single one of those answers was yes, Jews are evil. Mm-hmm. And then at the bottom, it said, you know, suggestions of what do you want to search for next. And the suggestion was, did the Holocaust happen? Right. So I was like, well. Okay, let's click that link. Mm-hmm. And I clicked that link. Every single result was saying, no, the Holocaust didn't happen. Mm-hmm. The top result went to Stormfront, mm-hmm. which is a Nazi website. Right. So it was this, you know, it was this kind of like Trump had just been elected. It was this sort of dark and stormy November night. And I was like, what on earth am I looking at here? Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this me? And so, you know, I was trying it on different browsers. I was trying different search terms. I got exactly the same thing with a whole range of search, including women. So when I did women and I put are women, again, I got are women evil. And there's this thing when Google is really certain of the answer, like 100% certain, mm-hmm. it puts the answer in a box. Mm-hmm. And so for are women evil, it put the answer in a box and it said, yes, women are evil mm-hmm. because every woman contains a little bit of prostitute inside. That her. was from where? Where was the link? It was from some crazy, crazy site. site. That was the one they suggested. And Anyhow, I was kind of screenshotting things and thinking, what on earth am I seeing? And then my really lucky break was a day later, it was only a day later, I stumbled across this academic who was then at a small school in the United States, Jonathan Albright. Mm -hmm. And he had just started mapping, trying to map this sort of ecosystem of these far right websites. Right. And linking, and what what he was discovering was he he t- he took a list, that a list had been published of like these websites which were publishing fake news mm-hmm. articles, and he used a tool which looked at all the links going in and out, and then he mapped them. And what he what he sort of saw 
Well, and he'd just done that when I got him on the telephone. And he was freaked out. I was freaked out. He was freaked out. And he was saying, it's like, it's like, he said, he's like, it's like a cancer. You can see it sort of strangling all the mainstream sources right. of news and information. And it's it sort of worked out. There's something systemic at work here whereby it's eclipsing what should be coming up. Because they're using it well. They're using because the tools they're using it as they were built, as they were architected. I always say there was an, there's an architecture you can, in the beginning, Google was more context accuracy and speed, and then it turned into virality, speed, and engagement. Like, or especially Facebook, same thing. And when you change the parameters of the architecture, you get different things. And I think a lot of right-wing uh, entities, which had been sort of zeroed out of media in general, sort of mm. sidelined into yes. mainstream media, found, you know, everyone was, everyone was like, oh, the you know, dictators don't like the internet. I'm like, no, they like it. Like, of course they like it. It's a huge opportunity for fringe groups. It's a huge opportunity for different views because they become on equal footing. They're, that's right. That's you know right. I mean? And I think, I think, you know, one of the first things, again, it was at a TED, actually, when I heard Eugenie Morozov talk about the way that, you know, Lukashenko in Belarus, mm-hmm. you know, had discovered the internet was this great friend. Well, you know, so it was like, Turkey, everywhere. Yeah. Turkey, everywhere. Yeah. So you, so you were got, got interested in the how this was built, which most Silicon Valley people say, hey, it's just a, a benign platform. That was their excuse. Hey, we're just putting, this is what people are searching for. Yeah, and there was this idea that Google were trying to, you know, in their responses to me, they refused to acknowledge. First of all, they refused to acknowledge there was anything wrong here, there was any problem at all. And then they were like, well, it just reflects what people are searching for. Right, yeah. So Paths are made by walking. Which was insane. You know, they're supposed to be organising the world's information Mm -hmm. and the idea of, you know, delivering quality results. How could that be? I mean, you know, you thought, how long have these results been out there? Who is that? I just, and I I always just thought of this sort of teenage kid in their bedroom just interested in who the Nazis are. You did like, is Hitler evil? And you got a whole result saying, no, Hitler was actually a really good guy. Mm -hmm. What was so interesting, that first story, that first response from mm-hmm. Google, yeah. this has been what, you know, I've spent the last two and a half years dealing with, which was this total lack of accountability from mm-hmm. the platforms, this denial of responsibility, and then the counterattack. So the way they went actually on the attack against us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just, normally what happened is, is that I, you know, I, I, this is what I did. I write, wrote these long form features. I got into a topic, I covered it, and then, you know, I moved on. And... You know, when I published this piece, I was like, surely the world is going to be, you know, say this is outrageous. Then it must do something. We've got to fix this. The net has been poisoned. What is what's you know, it's this there's this sort of shadow internet almost out there. And that didn't happen. And and Google just by refusing to engage, they started hand changing some of the results. So I thought, okay, well I've just got to keep kind of writing about this. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept, for the next sort of five or six weeks, I just carried on writing about mm-hmm. it. And I did things that this made them really incensed. I took out an advert. I used Google. I was like, aha, you know, how do I change the results to say that, yes, the Holocaust did happen? So I thought, I know, I'll take out a Google ad. Mm-hmm. So and I, I, I took out a Google ad to get that to the top of the search results. Mm-hmm. And that made them very furious. And um, anyway, and then they, Christmas Eve... One day of the year, we don't publish on a on Christmas Day, and that was the day, you know, Google sent in this massive legal kind of complaint to the Guardian. And so I was dealing with that till with our lawyer, our poor, poor put-upon head of legal at the Guardian, Jill Phillips, who has been very instrumental in this whole story. Mm-hmm. I do find it chilling. This They're never alleging. This, this just thing of trying to shut the story down, mm-hmm. trying to shut the story down, and, you know, by going after the reporter, by going after the newspaper. To say... 
to say they were claiming problems with my reporting and claiming something was inaccurate. And, you know, it's they pick up upon a tiny detail to distract from... The bigger story. But this, you know... But you persisted. Yeah, we persisted. But then what was kind of funny was that I actually I actually got waylaid because that was when Cambridge Analytica got on my case. Right. So I was kind of, I, and I was desperate. I've always wanted to go back to Google and you, I was like, YouTube's such a sewer. I'm desperate <laughs> to go and do something on them. But in the meantime, I started getting these crazy letters from this company, Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'd just been, they'd had one mention in the first piece. Mm-hmm. And I'd said, you know, they worked for the Trump campaign and they worked in Brexit because that's what their, you know, the website yeah. said and that's what the articles had said. And they started writing to me and saying, no, 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 that's, uh, that's not true. We never worked in Brexit. Mm. So we started writing back to them and saying, well, here's where your CEO said that you worked for the Leave campaign and here's where the Leave campaign said that you hired them. And they would like, yes, 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 but that's not true and you need to take that out and correct that. And so this went on about three times and I was like, what on earth is going on here? And and actually what then what happened is this, our reader's editor got in touch. He was sort of like, well, let's actually just find out what happened. And he got in touch with this guy called Andy Wigmore, mm-hmm. who worked on the Leave campaign, worked on Nigel Farage's Leave campaign, and asked him. And he said, yes, we did use Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. We just didn't pay them. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's kind of interesting, because that's kind of like a gift, isn't mm-hmm. it? And mm-hmm. I was like, don't gifts have to be declared? Right. And I trotted off to go for a coffee. Mm-hmm. with Andy and that conversation became the basis for the my first big piece on Cambridge Analytica Cambridge Analytica and also Robert Mercer and Steve Bannon it was this very it was just so interesting i mean i it was it was again it was before there'd been any it was before um, Jane Mayer had written her big piece on Robert Mercer for the New Yorker. Robert Mercer's sort of, a wealthy donor to so, Trump. So Ro- Ro- Robert Mercer's this sort of key character. He's this hedge fund billionaire, and he had been the biggest donor to Trump, mm-hmm. and he had funded Breitbart. So that was, right. so which is the far-right, far-right, um, you know, news network of which Steve Bannon was the editor-in-chief. And he, there were various things that he funded, and one of the other things he'd funded had been Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge Analytica had been very instrumental in the Trump campaign. And here was these guys saying, yes, and we used them in Brexit. So there was a nexus And there people. was this nexus, and he said that, you know, well, of course they wanted to help us because Brexit was the Petri dish for Trump. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that it was very explicit. And it's because, mm-hmm. of course, we, you know, we, we're the same family. Mm-hmm. We're using the same techniques. And Steve Bannon and Nigel Farage are good friends. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all part, Trump and Brexit are all part of the same thing. Anyway, that was the sort of first big story I did on Cambridge Analytica. And even then, it was out there, you know, this, this, this information about how Cambridge Analytica had somehow got hold of all this Facebook data. Mm-hmm. You know, when I looked at the cuts, there was this piece in The Guardian in December 2015 by a journalist called Harry Davies. And he, that was his scoop. He'd found that out. But at the time, Cambridge Analytica wasn't working for Trump. It was working for right. Ted Cruz. And Facebook just did what the tech companies do, which is it just denied it and refused to comment. And, you know, that was it. So you started to see the links between the Facebook data and Cambridge Analytica so, and, yes, and the Russians. Yes, and, and this sort of, you know, this concerted right-wing attempt to disrupt the mainstream media. That was what was so fascinating about it. Mm-hmm. 
Bannon and Mercer had, you know, these various different strategies, Mm -hmm. which was all about disrupting the mainstream media system and worked. And, you know, there was another one, which was they they also funded this thing, the Government Accountability Institute. Mm -hmm. And that, for example, with that, they did really deep research into uh, Hillary Clinton, and then they fed those stories into the New York Times, amongst mm-hmm. other places. It was, it was. So here you are with these pieces, which yeah. is okay, we're going to get back to when we get back. We'll talk more about it. You have these pieces of different things that they were yeah. doing that you were slowly working on. But I yeah. think what you had developed was a distrust of these companies in terms of. Yes, absolutely. What they were saying because they came at they were like we're just benign. We're we just have information. Anybody can use it. That's I think that's pretty much there. Yeah, and I think so. And also, it was just this thing which was in particular, which was that nothing had any traction anymore. So you know, it was publishing this stuff about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, and everybody was like, oh, "This is terrible." And then you know, the next outrage hit the news cycle, right. which and is the point. Yeah, which is meant to keep you exhausted. Which which is the point. I've kind of like, well, I've got to keep going. I keep needing to do the story again in a different way. And really, and that that was when, you know, the break I had was when I found Christopher Wiley. Right. All right. We're going to get into that when we return. We're with Carol Cadwallader. She's an investigative journalist at The Guardian, The Observer. She blew the lid off Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal last year. And we're going to talk about that and more when we get back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Carol Cadwallader. She's an investigative journalist for The Guardian Observer and obviously so well-known for dealing with issues around Facebook and the election. So you found Chris Wiley, who was the whistleblower inside of Cambridge Basically, I was was just kind of just getting these denials. Cambridge Analytica was just denying stuff. Facebook was just denying stuff. The Leave campaign was just denying stuff. What happened, the first article I did on Cambridge Analytica, I mean, it was this great success in some ways. It kicked off two big official investigations in Britain. So it kicked off one investigation by the Electoral Commission into, have they declared 
everything the, the that campaign they spending yeah. that that investigation is now with the metropolitan police we're mm-hmm. still waiting on you know the electoral commission has said no they didn't mm-hmm. and but there's now a police investigation into that and then the other investigation which was kicked off was by our information commissioner's office mm-hmm. that investigation became this massive inquiry into data and politics mm-hmm. which is is now the biggest data investigation of all time they've had 70 full-time people working on it it's the one which has now fined facebook the maximum amount etc so it precipitated that but at the same time there was just so much more out there. Anyway, so that was when I thought, right, I've got to find some ex-employees. I need to find somebody to talk to me. And so there was this kind of laborious process of, yes. of approaching people and being rebuffed, blah, blah, blah. And eventually I found somebody and he said, when well, as soon as I started talking about Facebook data, he said, well, you need to find Christopher Wiley. I was right. like, who's Christopher Wiley? And he said, well, it's this, he's this Canadian guy and he's the guy who got the Facebook data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then, you know, I looked on the internet Chris, very smart, nothing to connect him to Cambridge Analytica or Mm -hmm. the parent company SCL. But I found, you know, I I, I tracked him down and he'd been sort of waiting, I think. For somebody to find him. him. And he he was sort of surprised that nobody had found him until then. And, you know, it kicked off this, the first telephone conversation I had with him. He was in Canada at the time. It was about seven hours long. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was absolutely mind-blowing. And he was... One of the partners there, correct? He had been the research director. Okay, of he was the, a high-ranking. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He was, and it was his basically. It was his idea to get this Facebook data and to do this personality testing and to um, and to misuse the data, which is what Facebook said is that they took data and misused it, and they had Facebook had no idea they would not follow the Facebook rules. That was Facebook's excuse. Yes, but so I think so. We can, we can now go stronger than that because what they, you know, what they did was Facebook has the information commissioner in Britain has set, you know, has made the ruling that what Facebook did was illegal mm-hmm. in that it allowed Cambridge Analytica to break its rules. Yeah, to break the law. Right. I mean, it broke the law. Right. I mean, that's so. It's not just data abuse; it's illegal data abuse, and I think that is a kind of important distinction. And um, and Chris, you know, is this amazing character, and he had, and I was like, well, it was like it was all very well to have somebody saying, oh yes, X, Y, and Z, but I was like, well, can you prove any of this? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, yeah, I've got the receipts. Right. He literally had the receipts for the Facebook data, and he had the contracts. Mm-hmm. He had the you know the founding contracts for Cambridge Analytica, the company. And then he just started, you know, we started going through stuff. This more and more things came out. He went back and looked at emails and then found emails of Alexander Kogan, who was the, the, the psychologist at Cambridge University who'd harvested the data, you know, talking about... Which the, Cambridge Analytica used. Yes, right. sorry, yes. Talking about his trips to Russia at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, Chris pulling out this pitch and you know, discovered that he'd done this research for which Cambridge Analytica were pitching to Luke Oil. Mm-hmm. So they were pitching Russians. how to target American right. voters right. to the biggest Russian oil company. I mean, that stuff didn't make any sense. It was just super weird. So, yeah, so anyway, the next article was in May 2017. It was called The Great Brexit Robbery. And it was really about this skein of links between Brexit and Trump 
and Russia, and how you could see the connections between these the individuals and these companies and the data and the money. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, at that point, you know, we thought, well, Chris was kind of interested in, you know, he we, we'd already started talking about him coming forward as a named whistleblower. And but he had to break a non-disclosure agreement, so it was difficult and it was legally complicated. And immediately, I published that article. Then Cambridge Analytica started threatening the Guardian. It was it was threatening to sue us for defamation, for mm-hmm. special damages to sue us in Britain and in America. And this was, you know, it was owned by Robert Mercer, who's the deepest pockets. Right, right. And it was take, you know, it was really serious and you know, really quite scary and, and it, almost at like an existential level. You know, we just... Sure. Do you remember, you know, that the thing I think we were all chilled by was the way that Peter Thiel took down Gorka. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, a, you have an ideologically motivated billionaire who took down a media organisation mm-hmm. and here I was writing this story about an ideologically motivated billionaire who'd backed Trump. Right. The vice president of the company was Steve Bannon. At the time... Working he, in the White House. At the time, he was in the White House. I mean, it was really honestly kind of chilling and quite scary, <laughs> you know, thinking about what you were up against at the time. Uh, and now, you know, now so much of this has been normalised and... You know, Steve Bannon's not in the... Right. But, but we, you know, but at the oh, he's time... He's running all over Europe now. Yeah. <laughs> he's making trouble. But, but we, you know, we were looking at Cambridge Analytica had just won pen- contracts with the State Department. Mm-hmm. It was it had been reported that it was going to get a contract with the Pentagon. Right. So it had all of this information, 230 million American voters... Using Facebook data. Using these incredibly detailed profiles about people. Now, some of the... Facebook had pushed back on you several times on these stories, and, and including right before you published them. So that on that one, they just... They followed the same strategy. So this was exactly the same strategy. They refused to comment. Mm-hmm. And they pretended it didn't happen. And this is why, you know, it became why I realized that sort of Chris had this, he was this sort of secret weapon because having a person who could speak to it personally about what he had seen and witnessed and somebody who was so articulate and could Mm -hmm. frame what this meant and the dangers of it, you just, I just could see how that was, that would just catapult this story into a different sure. level of attention. Right. And so that was why I essentially spent the entire next year on I mean it was a year it was a year solidly full time you know, all day, every day, mm-hmm. like working on that story to get it. Now out. one of the things that face first they push back on you and threaten legal action. So they did then did not take it, right? Or did not? Because in a lot of ways, it, it came to Analytica as the story. Like that's the company you're going after, but Facebook is. I had no idea. I right. mean, I mean, absolutely. We kind of we always knew this story was going to be devastating to Cambridge Analytica. I had no idea of the scale of impact this would have on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Re- really didn't see that coming at all. And in many ways, it was the way that Facebook reacted and responded, which yeah. was the sort of killer. It, it, I, I mean, agree. I agree. It kind of blew itself up. Well, their argument initially was aggressive, and then it was like, we didn't know. Like, I think we didn't know is their basic argument. And they they spent sort of three days (laughs) figuring that out. So, I mean, what was extraordinary was that all through this period, I've been writing story after story about, you know, my stories about Cambridge Analytica, even whilst I'm working with Chris, they've, they've carried on. And, you know, whilst we've had this threat of being sued, we wrote a 35-page legal letter back to Cambridge. It took our lawyers a week. I mean, this was a huge effort from the Guardian News Organisation to keep going with this story. 
And at no point did Facebook ever say, oh, well, actually, okay, this is what happened. We know this, you know, we're sorry. There was, we just never got a comment. And then, you know, we go through, because our libel laws here are so much yeah. stricter, it's so much more difficult to publish this stuff. So and we, have, we go through, a, you know, a very kind of strict protocol before publication, everything in writing to them. So we put in our questions on the Monday and we'd had an agreement, New York Times and who I also did the story with and with Channel 4 News that we would put in our questions on the same day. Facebook, they didn't respond for three, four days. And then I get a call from them and they said, we're going to be sending you a response, a written response tomorrow. But just to let you know that we, you know, we're very, very categoric about this. This is not a data breach. <laughs> Just so well, you that's know. What they, they kept saying that. Yeah, they kept on no saying. No one says it was. <laughs> they kept on saying. I remember they called them like, breach. no one said it was. It's <laughs> not a breach. It's I know. A, I know. I know. We, we, we were still figuring out what the headline was at that point. So I got off the phone and my colleague, Emma Graham Harrison, who I wrote the news stories with, she said, what did they say? I said, well, they just, I said, oh, it was a bit weird. They sort of said, yeah, we're going to write to you, but they're very, very clear it's not a data breach. And she was like, hmm, data breach. Hmm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that became the headline. Yeah. So, and it, and, but then, but then, you know, the next day it was this. It was I couldn't believe it. You know, it'd been so hard to get through the, the the hurdles with Cambridge Analytica to get into this position to publish day before publication. Facebook, having had this information now, remember this for mm -hmm. more than two years, it then writes this legal legal sends us an elite. They hired these fancy lawyers in London to write us a letter. Didn't do this to the New York Times, obviously, and saying, you know, actually this is highly defamatory, and you know we will take legal action if you persist in, you know, publishing these falsehoods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so it spent, went into another panic, you know. So the, the day before publication, we're in these intense legal meetings. We're ringing the ICO. Well, actually, they haven't got a leg to stand on. This is ridiculous. So we're like, OK, we're plunging forward. Then what happens is it is one o'clock in the morning, the night before publication. And, I, and then we discover... Facebook have put out a press release in the middle of the night, British time, saying, oh, we're kicking Cambridge Analytica off our platform. So they tried right. to run a spoiler story. Right, right. So we kind of... That sounds like them. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I'd do if I were them. But go ahead. I know. I wouldn't so, do the first thing, but go so ahead. So it's kind of exhausting because yeah. the New York Times is saying, well, we need to publish now. And we're like, no, we need to hold off. We need to hold the line. We need to publish together. We need to stick to the plan. Anyway, so we all do. We, we just bring it forward a bit. We, we publish on the Saturday. And, you know... And then we had that three-day silence. I mean, it was it was sort of phenomenal in yeah. that Facebook just went into this internal tailspin and just yeah. didn't know how to respond. Yeah. And um, and then eventually, you know, I think it was day four, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we have heard those before in the United States of America. You just got to the... That was your first, I'm sorry, because it's my 50th. So the impact, Let's. what has been the impact? And then it went on, and then as more showed, it wasn't just... It was Cambridge Analytica, but a lot more. Yes. It, it goes off into so many branches. It goes into fake news. It goes into disinformation. It goes into just ugliness that people, real real feelings, real racist and uh, other things. Today, there was the story of, of the, uh, the Customs and Border Patrol having a Facebook group, which is just appalling. Now, I'm not sure that's Facebook's fault, but I do know it wouldn't exist without Facebook. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you, can you blame them mm. or can you say... I've had an ongoing argument with them. Uh, you know, they were like, if you had a if you had a robbery, would you blame the car? I said, you're the gun. 
Like you're the gun. <laughs> yes, that's what you are. Yes, like, that's right. Facebook doesn't. It's that thing, isn't it? Yeah, Facebook doesn't kill people. People kill people. Right, exactly, kind but, of thing. And so, how do you? So it's gone off into so many, and and it's gone into data hacking too, which they had an issue with, not just Facebook, but everyone in the internet. It's data hacking. It's privacy. It, it goes off into so many different avenues off this one idea that maybe things aren't quite so kosher with how these things are run. Yes. So where are we now? Let well, me fast forward you. I mean, for for a year, I'd had the tech bros saying to me, "You're a bummer." That all companies do this. There's nothing special about Cambridge Analytica. It's just it doesn't even work. It's snake oil, right? You know, it wasn't seen, as bad. We've seen article, as... article about this, and it was like, you know, this was. I just want to go back into the special features of this, which was that Cambridge Analytica came. It was a, the SCL, the parent group. It was a military contractor. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was a propaganda firm which had worked in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it, the, you know, this was no ordinary data firm. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that the different angle we had on it as well is that the sort of technology reporters in San Francisco reporting on technology firms just came at the story from a different angle and coming at it from Europe, where we had laws, mm-hmm. where it was, it was that, is this legal? Mm-hmm. And we now, you know, we now know, no, actually, it wasn't legal. But that is still unwinding. So, that just in terms of what Facebook did with Cambridge, just this bit of the story, mm-hmm. there are so many investigations going on. So the FBI is investigating, the Department of Justice is investigating, mm-hmm. the Federal Trade Commission is investigating, mm-hmm. the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating, and that's just in America. We know in the states, in the, yeah, in, we, we know that the the FTC. Is looking is I mean it's been said that it's looking at a um, you know a fine into the billions. Yeah, and I wrote a column saying they need to be fifty billion. Not yeah, five, but and you know just this week and but since and there's is, no laws, we need a big old fine. Yeah, and, and and just this week it was announced in Italy they imposed was it a billion euros? Mm, I don't know that one. But was it a million euros? I kind of like the scale of this thing yeah. is so crazy. I can't even keep up with mm-hmm. the you know the. So that is still very much unwinding that I find the SEC investigation into what Facebook did with Cambridge Analytica fascinating mm-hmm. because I think that's kind of the scary ones in many ways for them. It's ones where directors get held responsible. Yeah. And what we've seen with Facebook, you know, where I think when they didn't know how to respond to this, they've refused to say who knew what when about Cambridge Analytica. Right. That question, who knew what when has not been answered. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why Mark Zuckerberg, for example, won't come to Britain and answer the questions of our legislators. Be be clear that he has been invited by uh, different MPs for different commissions. And So, well, it's just this thing I find totally scandalous and is that Mark Zuckerberg has been asked multiple times by our parliament to come and answer questions about Facebook and particularly about Cambridge Analytica. And then what happened is because our parliament could get no traction, no answers from Facebook on these things, it then banded together with, I think it's 12 other countries. So countries like Canada and Australia and uh, Argentina, and they formed this grand international committee. And Mark Zuckerberg has refused to go and answer questions to them. And I mean, this is more than half a billion people being mm-hmm. represented here. So it's this incredible disdain 
to the rest of the world, essentially. We're just, we're just colonial subjects so of why, Facebook. Wh- where do you imagine it going then? Because the business has never been better. People are leaving. There's all kinds of different things going at, going at the same time. The FTC has shown a little more teeth, probably not enough. What do you think? The government. Uh, we'll get into that in the next <laughs> section. But I mean, what, are you, what direction are you going then in this, from this? Well, my thing about it is, is that, I, you know, I was treated like a wild conspiracy theorist yes, during yes. this entire... Including here in Britain. Absolutely here in Britain. And then... You know, it turned out, oh, it's all true, and it's actually much worse even mm-hmm. than I reported. Everything we find out about it is actually much worse mm-hmm. than we thought. And here in Britain, you know, my investigation has very much been also around these far-right figures mm-hmm. and their links into Russia and to the American far-right. Mm-hmm. It's, again, I get treated like a crazy conspiracy theorist, and it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely strategic because a way of attacking the story is to attack me. Right. And this, you know, it goes on on a daily basis. And it's, you know, it's a really tough publishing landscape here because right. so you know, much... I did a, I did a great... We did a good talk with Maria Ressa. It's the same thing, except in her case, it's quite dangerous. It's actually... This yeah. is, this is a, a brutal dictator. Yeah. Here, it's to ruin your reputation and to make it think that you are gone. You've gone, okay, she was right about that, but now she's gone too far. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's it's relentless and it's coordinated. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, most of the press is very right wing here. Mm-hmm. And we have our national broadcaster and they've been very scared to cover the story in so many ways. And so there have been a sort of absence um, on so much of this. And we just don't have the resources. Journalism just doesn't have the resources here. So this isn't a big team. The Guardian has been this amazing organisation which has sort of backed this story. But at the same time, it just hasn't had the money to put any extra right. reporting right, resources into this. All right, we're going to talk about that more because Carol did quite a talk at Silicon Valley at TED, which is the thing that started all this. And we're going to talk about that and why she did that and more and where this is going when we get back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. Listen. 
We're here with Carol Cadwallader. She is a journal, an investigative journalist for The Guardian Observer. She's the person who broke the original stories about Facebook's involvement with Cambridge Analytica, setting off a whole range of different things and directions in reporting. So you, you seem frustrated and, and sort of here you are, you've broken this thing and it doesn't, as you said, it doesn't get traction. It doesn't matter. I don't believe that. I do think it has traction. I just don't know what kind of traction it has, right? Because what happens in the United States is there's one horrible thing Trump says after another, and you forgot the last one he said. And that's the whole point of it. Exhaustion is the whole point of social media, so that you give up at some point, or you become tired and exhausted and overwhelmed, or you get impugned. Um, In your case, crazy conspiracy theorists. In my case, she's such a bummer. She's so mean. And I don't know how you can be mean to billionaires. I don't don't even get it. I don't even get it. It's like there's no amount of mean that they shouldn't be able to take on some levels. And so it's in personal terms, mean, uh, bummer, negative, overly negative, doesn't, don't you like tech? That's the kind of things I get, which is interesting. Um, But they still talk to you, which I find really fascinating. I loved your interview with Mark Zuckerberg. That was a disaster for him. He's never going to be one again. (laughs) I thought it was Every interview he does with me is a disaster. It's really fascinating. I think they're great, actually. I don't think they're a disaster. I think they're great for Mark Zuckerberg because he actually start. You start to see the mentality, right? You know what I mean. I don't think that's a bad thing for but him. But I just that thing that you the way. I mean, I just thought it was such a sort of amazingly telling moment when you tried to press him on like you asked him about Myanmar, right? And you kept you trying to break through and be like, how did that make you feel, right? And how does that make? And he you kept on asking it, right. and he kept on being unable to answer it. Right, right. He was, I don't think he was by any means being disingenuous. I think he couldn't answer. Like, it was really interesting. I've been around people who are disingenuous. I understand that, like, liars. It's a very different level of he has no ability to, to take responsibility, even though I think he's not the kind of, again, people I've covered have been really unctuous, awful people. It's not the same thing, so it's really an odd thing to be sort of pressing someone who just can't even compute. I don't know how else to well, put it's, it. Well, it's this, because uh, I, initially I was kind of like, is it just, is that the lawyer's answer? And, you're no. like, and then you're like, actually, this is dissociation. And that's right. the thing which I find right. the most chilling, right. actually, of it, which is that, do you know, you have these people who can't respond on a human level. I mean, I just can't. And how, I mean, how do you compute that? You, you know, you're the head of this company. Right. And, you know, the United Nations has said that you have helped foment, you know, the mass killing mm-hmm. of people. Right. And to like not not <laughs> to not have a reckoning with yourself and to not want to make right. amends. Well, what happens is they in, in he not he doesn't do it as much, but the, a lot of them get into this victim mentality. Like, hey, you're a victim and become super aggressive. Like the People on the board of Facebook have gotten super aggressive, like, you know, who have no power, by the way. So I don't really care what they think in lots of ways. But it's a really interesting reaction. It's victimization. It's if you don't fail, you don't do things. Like suddenly all of a sudden Silicon Valley has been shooting off tweets around, like, you have to fail. And only those who criticize don't create. I'm like, I create and I criticize. Nice to meet you. Like, it's really (laughs) an interesting thing. So talk about how the aforementioned this TED talk that you did that really got a lot of traction, speaking of traction. And I think it really did. It was, I mean... So you were invited there, where you had gotten your initial, like, wow, tech is fantastic. You were back there. Yes, and I've I've been to, you know, because I've been and I've been a reporter at TED. So I, you know, I knew kind of what a big deal it was. And I was 
so terrified of public speaking and I've kind of forced myself doing this story to, you know, start doing panels and then, mm-hmm. but I'd still, a TED Talk was sort of at, a, at another level of sort of terrifyingness. But I knew that it was this opportunity to talk directly to the people who are in these companies making these decisions and who are responsible and so I really did want to, I think you, 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 that, that interview you did with Zuckerberg, I think that did inspire me in some ways. But it was, you know, I wanted to break through to them as people and as people who are responsible for creating this world that we have now found ourselves in. And it's not that, I don't think, you know, we know they didn't set out to, right. to do so. Nobody did. Mm-hmm. But well, maybe. Maybe Cambridge Analytica did. Anyway. Yeah, maybe Cambridge Analytica. No, they absolutely. Oh, come on. Yeah, uh, I mean, so they're an extraordinary company. There's still so much about Cambridge Analytica, which, you know, they worked in, I think, 154 elections around the world. We've only scratching the surface. We've actually got no idea what Cambridge Analytica did mm-hmm. for Trump. Well, but I think that's the point. So much You're never going to find out. That's the whole point of Don't the whole Russian stuff. count on it. Some of the Russian stuff you'll never be able to quantify. And if you can't quantify it, people will say, well, it didn't switch the election. It was because Hillary Clinton was a, was a bitch. Like, that's you, why. I, I'm like, know, maybe, but it's also this. You can't quantify. I know, but you know what? This is where the power of kind of conscience and mm-hmm. of people, <laughs> people, you know, having a moral conscience mm-hmm. is so important. And that's the thing I think I was trying to appeal to. Because this, you know, we saw with Christopher Wiley, you have one person who decides to speak out and yeah. it has this incredible power. There are people all across Silicon Valley who know stuff who are not speaking about it. Mm-hmm. And like I say, the thing of, you know, Cambridge Analytica, there were these employees who worked on the Trump election, young Europeans who've not spoken out. I mean, I just... I, you know, I mean, maybe this is one thing to say on you, you know, on your your podcast. It's listened to people, in, but you know, it's listened by people in Silicon Valley, and it's like, are you really okay with this stuff? I mean, are you really okay with your company's leadership? Are you really sure that they are doing everything that they can? Because you know, you should be troubled and you're part of it. You are you are part of this. You can't pretend that you don't know anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, before we didn't know. And I don't think employees knew the full story, but it's becoming sure. clearer and clearer. And it is deeply, deeply troubling. And this, the way that it is, the way, I mean, it is, I think techno-fascism is one of the ways that I kind of think about started thinking about it really, which is that this technology favors populist authoritarians, and that is what we're seeing all across the world and every day we see more of it, and we see the way that they're communicating with each other and they are growing in strength mm-hmm. and numbers, and they are being facilitated by these technology companies and you employees are part of that. As you see, I just did a really interesting interview with the head of AWS uh, about facial recognition. And it was, I don't know if you saw the rea- what he said, we're not responsible for how people use our technology. And I was like, yes, you are. And then, no, yeah. you are. It was an interesting back yeah. and forth. Again, a terrifically successful executive, lovely guy. And it was really interesting, I, uh, uh, the, the mentality of, hey, we just make this stuff. 
we can't be. How do you, what solutions do you find? You did this, your, your speech was so impassioned. And so you've got to have a conscience. You've got to have ethics. And it's something I've written about. They need ethics. They need to take humanities courses. They need to do this. What do you think prevents it? And what do you think some of this, besides just constantly reminding them of, of that, what do you imagine the solution to be? Great reporting. <laughs> I on, think shame. Shame. Shaming. <laughs> Shaming. I, I, That's my job for years now. It's not working. What do, what do you imagine it to be? Besides shame, the solutions. How do you educate a whole new group of technology people that this is not right? They have to think really uh, but hard. I, th- I think it's this. I mean, and I think one of the things has been that it's just been technology kind of industry has existed within this bubble. Mm-hmm. Technologists creating technology for, and and it's this. We need all sorts of other types of people. We mm-hmm. need philosophers and ethicists and more diversity. We need the people who are being harmed by this technology represented. And I find it incredibly troubling that this, uh, one of the most troubling things I find is that, so one of the reasons that we were very grateful to, you know, partner with the New York Times, for Mm -hmm. example, as well on this story was that it's only the United States that can legislate against these companies in, in that sense. And it's the only the US press that they pay any attention to. And we did this big workshop with these journalists from Bangladesh and India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan who were telling me about the ways that, you know, the technology is being used in their countries. Mm-hmm. And they've got no chance right. of holding Facebook and Google to account. Right. You know, it's this sort of, you know, in Britain where we speak the same language and we have this shared culture and our, much of our news media is shared, we had no chance. Mm-hmm. So that I feel there is this real responsibility in the United States to also press the case for the rest of the world and for what is going on with social media in right. the rest of the world. Agreed. And and what do you imagine should happen? What what would you, if you could, you know, Facebook has proposed this sort of, it is true, a Supreme Court, look at their stuff, which I think is just ridiculous. You know, we want you on our, they didn't ask me, but I'd be like, no, thank you. It's, it's not my company and I didn't, you know. I didn't cause this mess, and I'm not going to clean it up for you. But what do you imagine would work? I mean, I think I think there's an awful lot that governments can do. Mm-hmm. One of the things which I think became very clear during the, the Christchurch massacre was that that video was going viral across the, the world. The two platforms, especially. And they refused to take responsibility for it. Just, you know, my I, I, I say this again, is that... Turn off the uploads if you cannot control what content is being uploaded. And I think forcing the platforms to take responsibility as publishers, mm-hmm. you know, which you know Britain is making some moves towards now, is a is a vital sort of first step. Don't let them get away with it. I mean, this is incitement to violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's incitement. And we have laws against that. And and so, you know, we need to enforce the laws we have and we need new laws. So it is on us as citizens as well. I mean, this is one of the things I think. It's on us as citizens to put pressure on our lawmakers and mm-hmm. to get laws changed. And this is on us. What's this interesting is-, is that Trump and others in the administration are going after Facebook, have antipathy towards technology, which is, I was like, they're your best friends, my friend. Between Twitter and Facebook, you should, like, throw them a party in the White House, complete with McDonald's hamburgers. It'll be great. Like, you know, and by the way, they like that food, so good luck. But so it's, what, what do you make of that? 
I mean, it's just it's just kind of interesting, isn't it? That way that it's crossed the aisle now, mm-hmm. and um, and I think a year and a half ago, the biggest threat Facebook saw coming was from Europe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true anymore. I think the United States. Oh, we'll see. Do you think? I think they're we're as super mile wide and foot deep as we ever were on everything. This is. And yeah. they have hired all kinds of lobbyists. Oh. They have, they, the stuff I'm seeing now is really interesting. I'm spending a lot of time in Washington going, no. Every time someone, I hear all their arguments, I'm like, that's not true. I just sit there and tell legislators, it's not true. That's not true. And they need to look at this and they need to do their job. And Which is which is hard because as a journalist, you're like, why am I mm. advocating? But it's not advocating. It's like, don't mm. have people lie to you about what they're mm. doing. And what's interesting is at the heart of it, I think a lot of these things can be wonderful. Like, can be great. Like, a lot of the, a lot of it, I you know, I love Twitter. I know, you know, I love full communication. And what's fascinating is is the is the pushback on we can say anything we want. Like we should be. It's the they that they, they tie themselves to the First Amendment when this has nothing to do with the First Amendment. It doesn't. You know, what I mean that it's free speech. It's not free speech. You don't have free speech, and and it, and you're not a public square, and you're a private company. And to try to tell citizens these people are billionaires off of your data, it's not. They're not helping you. They're helping themselves and and hurting you. And so that's the message I think that's mm. harder I to mean, get through. But, I mean, with one of the ones which was he came last week. So one of the things which is uh, we find most painful here in Britain is so. Our ex-Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. Nick, tell me about Nick Clegg. <laughs> he hasn't so I, called me. I'm waiting by the phone. Nick, call is me. It, is he here? Have you asked him for an interview? No, I should. I should. I so it's so funny. I asked him for an interview last week because yeah. I found out the New, New Statesman, okay, which is a niche <laughs> left-wing magazine here. There's a friendly, he'd done an interview with this guy before, friendly interviewer. He's giving them an interview. <laughs> He's not going to give you a one. <laughs> so, the ladies it, aren't getting the interview. Nick. <laughs> Not like the ladies. We're real sweet. We're so real docile. Nick took my TED talk very personally. He's, yeah, and it, it's interesting. And this is a guy who attacked Facebook before, correct? Or had been? Yeah. Questioned. And you know, he was a liberal Democrat. He sort of, you know, gave speeches against monopolies. Mm-hmm. And the backstory to Nick Clegg is that he was in this, um, you know, centrist party, the Liberal Democrats, mm-hmm. and he helped David Cameron. He didn't get enough majority to form a government and Nick Clegg's party propped him up. Mm-hmm. And he would say, well, he moderated some of their harsher policies. And others would say, well, actually, he enabled them to carry out this, you know, austerity program. And and he also reneged upon all of his campaign. And it, it devastated the Lib Dems. They hugely lost their um their, their membership base. Anyway, he loses, then loses his seat in Parliament. And he, you know, he's, he trots off to Silicon Valley to take this job. And it's just, it's, he, oh, sorry. That's I, all right. Please go on. <laughs> <laughs> the cynicism of it, the cynicism of it. Yeah. You know, he's somebody, he, and the reason he take, took it so personally, he took my TED Talk so personally, is because... Did you get a point of text or something? My colleague got a very plaintive text from him. But he took it very personally because, and he's hit back, I find this, he he went on the BBC last week to spread actual misinformation. Because so he, he turned up at this panel event two weeks ago and I sat in the audience and mm-hmm. asked him a question. And what we know is that during the referendum, Facebook was the site of multiple illegal acts. 
leaks, okay, that took place. So these campaigns used Facebook to break our electoral laws. So we we control money in our elections. That's one of the basics of our of our electoral laws. But they discovered you can just spend any amount of money on Facebook and nobody will know. And so we've we've got these investigations going on at the moment, but our electoral commission has concluded that two campaigns broke the law and broke the law by a massive amount. This is massive electoral fraud. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what the big picture is of what exactly happened during the referendum, of how much money was overspent, of who was targeted and and with what ads, etc., is this that Facebook has all of that information. And that's the thing that it's refusing to tell Parliament. Mm -hmm. And Nick Clegg is, was passionately anti-Brexit. So the idea somehow that the company he's now shilling for and covering for is, is somehow implicated, he's just gone on this sort of, you know, gone on the defensive. And when I, you know, I started asking him about where the data is, and he said to me very crossly, he's like, the information commissioner has the data. And I said, no, this isn't a question about Cambridge Analytica. I'm not accusing Cambridge Analytica mm -hmm. of hijacking Brexit. It's not, there's no suggestion Suggestion mm -hmm. that it was Cambridge Analytica. So you're just failing to... But he's using that. He's deliberately answering a question which hasn't been asked by saying, well, there's some people who say... There are some conspiracy theorists who say that Cambridge Analytica called us Brexit. Let me tell you, this is absolute nonsense. Nobody's saying that. Mm -hmm. And But he, you know, last week he was here in Britain and he said that and the BBC reported it and bingo, you know, there he is earning his money for his boss. Yeah, he wrote an essay too that was... Pretty appalling. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Nick, I'm open-minded. Let's have lunch. I'm always charmed by a British accent. In any case, oh, what Cara, next? I can't believe you said that. <laughs> I'm, listen, you know what? Always good to talk. Anyway, I get good interviews out of them, which is important. See, you like mm. that interview with Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. Uh, I don't think there'll be another, though, in that case. What do you imagine will happen now? Which one of these companies do you think needs most legislation? And then we'll finish up. In the United States. Because you're right, it has to be done in the United States. It, it can't has be to be done in the United States. I don't know, it's really hard. You can impose all kinds of things where Mark Zuckerberg will never be able to come to Britain or Jack Dorsey or the Google guys or whatever. It's just also terrifying. I mean, I saw Jack Dorsey at an event a few weeks ago and... You know, it's like I asked him, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, the president of the United States looks like he might start a nuclear war on your platform? How does that, how do you feel about that? Right. And how, you know, and the fact that he breaks your terms and conditions every single day and you don't do anything about it. He's a newsmaker, right? Is that their argument? I don't think they even have an argument. They just say it's really difficult. And they kind of, I mean, it is, that is difficult in fairness. So what would you, okay, I'm going to ask my final question. Carol, if you're running... Facebook slash Twitter slash Google, what would you do? I mean, it, some of it is just money. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what? The, the thing I find is that this like, oh, these big problems are so big and we're training our AI and la, la, la. So one of the most compelling arguments I find with Facebook is that one in seven people who work in Facebook moderation work on German content. And that's because in Germany there are laws against hate speech. And so they've got to enforce it. Now, a colleague worked out that if you were to employ German levels of content moderation globally, 
it would, I mean, it's a tiny, it's like something like half a percent of Facebook turnover or something. I mean, just employ more people and pay them properly. Right. And you did see Casey Newton's piece on the content moderators yeah. who they don't pay very well. Exactly. And they give you them can their, pay people properly. You and can give them proper you can psychological train them help. properly. Yeah. And you can just have more of them. They that's, should be working for Facebook. I mean, that's, which that's, is, there is no argument. There is no excuse. That is just a bottom line. That is just failure to take responsibility. Employ more people. So employ more people. Um, the thing is, I they can't. They, they we we just don't trust them to do the right thing, and that's the sort of imperative of, of legislators. That's where legislators are the ones who really have to step up, I think. And and again, that's where I think it comes us to us as people, as citizens, mm-hmm. to be paying attention to this. So, Carol, tell me about being sued by one of the bad boys of Brexit. That's the recent thing which has gotten your... Yeah, so this was just... This was one day, within 24 hours of me reporting about Steve Bannon's connections to the man who might be our future Prime Minister, looks like he will be our future Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. I have a a torrent of articles about me unleashed on these right-wing blogs, and I get a legal letter from Aaron Banks, who is, he is Nigel Farage's funder. He's one of the guys who call themselves the bad boys of Brexit. Mm -hmm. And he's, it's incredible. He's suing me for defamation, uh, threatening to sue me for uh, my TED talk. Wow. So he's citing two talks I gave in public. Mm -hmm. One was a TED talk. The other one was this event called The Convention. And it's this really chilling way in Britain and that, his that millionaires, but I, so politically motivated millionaires can try and silence journalists through litigation. We had it with Cambridge Analytica, we had it with Facebook, and now I've got Aaron Banks. And Aaron Banks is not going after The Guardian. He's going after, or Ted, mm-hmm. he's going after, because he can't, mm-hmm. because it's an American organisation, he's going after me as an individual. And, um, yeah, so he's suing me because I said in my TED Talk, I said, I'm not even... Here we go. Let's just say it again, Aaron. You can add this one to the bill. I said, so Aaron Banks used... This was it, was... it was his connection to Cambridge Analytica that sort of set me off on this whole story. And I subsequently, after I broke the big Cambridge Analytica story last spring, in the summer I did another big story about, which is I got hold of a stash of emails, and it was about how Aaron Banks had been making these covert trips to the Russian embassy in London in the lead-up to the referendum. And he was offered gold and diamond deals by the Russian ambassador, and this is the Russian ambassador who's named in Robert Mueller's indictments mm-hmm. as being a conduit between, um, essentially a communication channel between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. There's something just I just want to go into very briefly. Sure. After the referendum, Aaron Banks and Nigel Farage continued travelling between London and then they were they were on the Trump campaign and they were still going into the Russian embassy here. So these connections between these Brexiteers, between the Trump campaign and between the Kremlin, uh, you know, there in black and white. For two years after they had been making those visits to the Russian embassy, mm-hmm. Aaron Banks lied about this. He said he'd had one lunch with the Russian ambassador. So we published this stuff and I call him out and Parliament's 
also in its in a, in an official report also published all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's just intimidation. It's just trying to get you. To it's stand intimidation, out. Mm-hmm. but. You know, it's still something I have to take seriously. Right. I have to have a law. I mean, it's just like, it's insane. Yeah. And it's just bullying. And um, and as I say, it's in coordination with all these other elements who go after me in this with these, like, nasty attack stories. Even Boris Johnson, he was finally asked about this relationship with Steve Bannon. And on this radio show, he said, oh, it's complete codswallop. It's complete codswallop. And that's what they call me. Right. You know, it's the, this is the, the, the oh, nickname that I get from these oh. people. Well, you've got a nickname. If we believe in the freedom of the press and we believe that it's important to have a free and functioning press... You know, we should all be horrified at this. And it's just another example. It's exactly what Trump is doing yep. in calling the press the enemy of the people, right. etc. Well, I was just going to say, hello, I'm the enemy of the people. Yeah, exactly. Maybe the enemy of some people. Exactly. And, and as I say, sort of litigation is this extra weapon you can use in, in Britain. And, you know, I've, this isn't that. I mean, I've this, this multiple this ones. But this in particular, and that they're just going after me as an individual, is just particularly nasty. So, Carol, are you still a tech? Do you still love tech? Because it started off that way. I have so many attacks. And it's been, I've had a really, really tough couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But I get this amazing support on social media. Mm -hmm. And that that has been, you know, the, the using the resource of social media to sort of, to communicate this story has been really vital. So... You know, I, I can see the utility of this stuff, but it just scares me. I mean, I think I go back to that, you know, that that sort of the alarm I felt when I found those Nazi mm-hmm. results and the alarm I feel about what is happening day to day in Britain and, in you know, in America and these other countries. I mean, we should all be really, really chilled at what is happening in the world and I care about that. I just mm-hmm. kind of like, I can't, I feel that I'm in a position to try and do something about it. So I feel this compulsion to try and do something. But it, you know, it is difficult and it has a personal toll. And, you know, having all of these different people and individual and companies coming after me at this, on this very personal, vicious level is, you know, I, I, I get it. <laughs> I it's, just, it. it's just hard. Yeah, yeah. It is hard. Many of and them I'm, are bots. You do know that. Yeah, many of whom are. But, but here, particularly, this sort of pernicious right-wing media, which I have to deal with, is mm-hmm. really tough. But the, yeah, but, we have uh, none of that in the United States but, now. <laughs> you know, but there are... Rupert, Rupert's an American citizen now. Oh, no. No, we made him one. I know. And that's something which He's is, an immigrant, you know, Rupert Murdoch, in case you're interested. And that again, I mean, the thing is, we haven't even talked about is the, the connections, the transatlantic connections here are so strong and so mul- multitudinous. Mm-hmm. And the, the money which flows between the states and between Britain and the way that we're a kind of bridgehead between the far right in America and the far right in Europe and in, and, you know, and in Russia, which supports the far right in Europe, mm-hmm. you know, is a, a sort of really key aspect of this. And... We can just see the way that Brexit weakening our ties to Europe, making us more prey mm-hmm. to Trump's America, your America. Is there any glimmer of hope? Do you think it's through legislation, through smart I think legislators? There is, I think, I think, I think that is. I mean, I think 
there had been certain glimpses. I saw Knock Down the House, that Netflix documentary, mm-hmm. and that was the first thing which sort of cheered me up for yeah. ages, actually. She's was, tough. Yeah, and it's that you can, you know, we can overcome some of this stuff, but it really does take... Well, you see the attacks that, on her. Look at look at it, those, those CPB people, those appalling, but may I just we say. need people to step up and we yes. need people to, yes. to, to take on the fight. And I get why people don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But actually... This is where, you know, as I say, like people in Silicon Valley really need to look inside. Okay. So what's your next focus? Well, it's still, it's this, I mean. The links between the far right. There's, oh. still, so, there's still so much of the Cambridge Analytica story, which right. hasn't been reported out. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, this, you know, it just mutates and changes form. So that Nigel Farage's new party, the Brexit party, mm-hmm. it's now using PayPal to try and circumvent the electoral finance laws. And, you know, two weeks ago, I did a, not just over a week. No, it's one week ago. I wrote, uh, you know, I did a story about Boris Johnson's links to Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. I mean, this stuff isn't stopping. Right. It's absolutely going on right now in real time. And it is incredibly underreported here in Britain. Mm-hmm. So I haven't felt able to sort of just step back and go, OK, I've done my bit, right. you know, take it on, team. Right. So you will persist. So I have been, uh, yeah, until, I don't know, yeah, (laughs) until I finally crack up, I suppose. You're not going to crack up, Cara. Thank you, Cara. That's nice to have your confidence. And you are a great journalist, and uh, anybody who says different will have to go through me. (laughs) Thank you. They don't want to go through me. (laughs) No, that's true. You know. Me and Megan Rapino have your back. <laughs> you got you to join the militia Etheridge. Do you know about that? No. It's lesbians. We got, we're real mean. We're real mean. We call it the militia Etheridge. <laughs> That's great. Shit. Can you just, like, come over here and sort of kick some shit, please? Oh, you got plenty over here. Okay, we will. That, anyway, I appreciate uh, you for coming on the show. You are a wonderful journalist. You have done an amazing work. And for those who uh, are critical of her, you better take a second look because what she's saying is 100% true. And we really appreciate that speech you gave. It was really oh, amazing. It, it, thank you. It hit a lot of people. And it did not. It had a lot of traction, in case you're interested. Anyway, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Carol, how can people find you? Um, probably Twitter, Carol Cadwalla. Yeah. You can find it. She's easy to find on the thing. I I can spell it for you, but it's up to you. It's C-A-D-W-A-L-L-A-D-R. And she's at The Guardian and The Observer. If you like this episode, which I did, we'd really appreciate if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to David Prest and Ollie Morris at Whistledown Studios in London, where I am broadcasting from. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.